I want you to see a video that I think kind of uh, sums up gifts that are temporary. Watch this for a moment. to share with you today about the best gift ever and it's it's one that can't be taken away from you it's the gift of God let's pray father come now by the power of your holy spirit and reveal the authority of your son Jesus Christ i pray it in Jesus name amen the gift of god you know that's the original gift of christmas and it's the best gift ever isaiah was a prophet who prophesied this 500 years before it happened, the Lord spoke through him. Look at chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. 500 years later, we pick up the fulfillment of that prophecy in Matthew 1.20. It says this. It's talking about the angel speaking to Joseph as he considered this. He fell asleep, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to go ahead with your marriage to Mary, for the child within her has been conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this happened to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. And here it is, 500 years later, they're saying fulfilled in Jesus. They're speaking the same words that were in Isaiah 7, 14. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and he will be called Emmanuel. And then it adds this to it, meaning God is with us. What's so incredible about this gift is it's God coming down to live in our hearts. He would be born as a baby in a manger and he would bring eternal life to all of mankind. That's what the Christmas story is really all about. I was saddened as I watched some YouTube videos and I watched kids open gifts and at first it was fun. They were all excited, but I watched a number of these and over and over again, it was all about the presence in the tree and family. And, and that's fine, but it's not really what Christmas is all about and it made me sad to think that everything now revolves around uh, just, just those things when really... It's eternal salvation coming to mankind. Look again at Isaiah. Now we're going to skip a couple chapters up where he starts speaking again prophetically. And now the prophet starts to explain the characteristics of the Messiah. I want to open this gift for you today and cause you to see it a little bit more than maybe you have recently. What is Jesus? Who is he? What's he all about? Isaiah 9-6 shares some characteristics. And first it says this, we'll take it line by line in, in verse 6 of Isaiah 9. For a child is born to us, a son is given. Jesus was fully God, yet fully man. The deity, God, and man. Why, why would God come as a man? 
Well, God the Father created mankind. Mankind sinned. We sinned. All of us have sinned, the Bible says, and have fallen short of the glory of God. So man had sinned, and God so altogether holy that man must pay the price for their sin before they can come into the presence of the Lord. Since man had sinned and man must pay the Christ and God didn't want to destroy his creation because he loves us, he sent Jesus down to become a man to pay the price. Man had sinned, man must pay the price. That's what the cross was all about. That's what that first morning was all about. The salvation of mankind had begun. The story was now on the move. Fully man, yet fully God. Now why, why did he have to be, why did he have to come from heaven? Why couldn't just any man pay that price? A good man, many men pay the price. In the Old Testament, they would kill animals to appease the wrath of God against sin. And that would just last for a little while. And then every year or every season, they'd have to do that again. And it would be put off. The wrath against sin would be put off. But the, the animals that were used, and, and, and the best animal that would used, if you had money and you could afford it, you would offer up your lamb. But it couldn't be your worst lamb, it had to be your best lamb. It couldn't be a lamb that had flaw, a broken leg, spots, weak, skinny, what, whatever. It couldn't be those things. It, ha, it, it was supposed to be a spotless lamb. So you offered the best, a spotless lamb up to sacrifice to the Lord to appease the wrath against sin. Why did God come from heaven? Because the lamb had to be a spotless lamb. Jesus is the only one who ever walked this earth that did not sin. He knew no sin, the Bible says. Fully God, the spotless lamb. It had to be Jesus coming from heaven. Fully man, man was paying the price. The deity, a child is born to us, a son is given. That's what that's talking about. Here's where it says it in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53, verse 5. And if you're thinking right, this will move you. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God, come from heaven to be a man and pay the sacrifice for our sins. Isaiah 9, 6 goes on to say, and it's a line that you may not understand in reading this in the American culture, but it would make sense in a Hebrew culture. It says, and the government will rest on his shoulders. What does that mean? Well, in the Hebrew culture, the scepter belonged to a king. And when the king laid the scepter upon his shoulder, it meant that this is the man who has all power in this kingdom. The kingdom is his. Whatever he speaks is done. So the Hebrews understood what it meant when you say the government will be upon his shoulders. Someday Jesus will come back. He'll rule over all the earth. Everything will be under his control. He'll bring peace to this earth forever. The Bible speaks of this. And what it was saying was, he is the king who will have everything in his control in the future kingdom, but it's both now and not yet. It's not yet fully because he hasn't come back, but that power is ours 
as we appropriate it even today, he has all power in his hands. The government will all be his and under his control. And then it goes on to say about the qualities of Christ. We're going to take these one at a time. These will be his royal titles. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and the prince of peace. Let's look at those for a moment. Wonderful counselor. This is describing his great wisdom and his superior abilities to guide and direct you and I. To guide and direct the human race. Think of this now. He knows all things that have happened. He knows all things that are going to happen. He sees all things. He knows you better than you know yourself. Do you know we can be convinced by people that we're something other than what we really are sometimes? I mean, there are people in your life, sometimes authorities that can put you down and make you think you're nothing or nobody. And you're not thinking right. And then there are people who can build you up to the point and if you receive it, you'll think you're better than you are and get all cocky and go the wrong way. God knows who we are, what we're created to be and the beauty of asking him to help us is he'll help us settle into what he created us to be. You are uniquely made. Nobody has your personalities. Nobody in the history of the world has ever had your gift mix. You're just distinctly different. And when you learn to be fully who he created you to be and let the Holy Spirit touch that, you will come alive in your life. You will enjoy life more than ever. And we can't get who we are from people. We have to get who we are from God. He's the wonderful counselor. He'll lead us in the right ways. He completely loves you and you can completely trust him. He knows what's best for you. And he'll show you what to do if you ask him. You know, we tend to get excited about things going wrong around us. And if we think too much about the future, um, we can get fixated on it and be paralyzed at times. Fear can rise up. And we have to ask God in moments where things aren't going well, what do you want me to do right now? We can't just think about everything that could go wrong. Most of the stuff you think about that could go wrong never happens, you know. That's one reason that God asks you not to, not to fear and, and think that way. But James 1.5 says this, if you need wisdom. Now, where are you at in your life? You have a wonderful counselor. If you need wisdom, it says, if you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him. You say, God doesn't speak to me. He doesn't talk to me the way he talks to you. Yes, he does. You just don't recognize it's him sometimes. He'll speak to you through other people. He'll speak to you through his word. You'll find yourself, if you're really seeking him, you'll find yourself settling into knowing what to do if you're listening. He will gladly tell you. He will not resent your asking, it says. He knows who you are. He knows what you're going through. There was a Sunday school class where a little girl was asked to recite the Lord's Prayer and she got it close but not quite right. She said, Our Father who art in heaven, how did you know my name? <laughs> he knows you. You're his. He loves you. You say, I've made a lot of mistakes. People don't stop loving their kids because they make mistakes. God the Father, the perfect Father, does not stop loving us because we've made mistakes. He still loves us. If you're a good parent and God the Father is the best, When your kids make mistakes, you just want to help them, right? You just want to get, help them get on track and hold them and bless them. Well, Jesus, the full representation of the Father, 
loves us, the Bible says. He's the wonderful counselor. He wants to lead us and guide us. Romans eleven thirty three. I want you to notice wonderful and knowledge, those two words in the scriptures, speaking of the wonderful counselor in Isaiah that was spoken of. Verse 33, oh, what a wonderful God we have. There's the word wonderful. How great are his riches and wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge. Now, wonderful and counselor in this verse too. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his methods. For who can know what the Lord is thinking? Who knows enough to be his counselor? We need to tap into that wonderful counselor. That's part of unwrapping the gift. He's there for you every day to get that wonderful wisdom from. Second thought, verse six now, it speaks of Jesus being the mighty God. The Messiah Jesus is the strength of God. He's a divine hero with all power in his hands. As a matter of fact, he really is the one true superhero. There isn't another one. He is a superhero. Listen to what the Bible says about him. John 10, 30, the father and I are one. Some people can't relate to the father because their dad has messed them up. They didn't have a good dad. Well, Jesus came to show us who the father is. Your father wasn't being who God created him to be. He wasn't loving right. But Jesus said, I and the Father are one. You look at the qualities of Jesus, you look at the qualities of the Father. Colossians 2, 9, for in Christ the fullness of God lives in a human body. He's the fullness of God. Matthew 28, 18, now look at the power that's his. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given complete authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus, the mighty God, all authority in his hands. Don't let life's ups and downs bring you to the point that you get cynical and no longer believe that the mighty power of God is available for you in your circumstances. Sometimes we pray and we don't get the answers to the prayer that we expected or wanted. I like the old country song that says some of God's best gifts are unanswered prayers. In the same way that a parent won't give a toddler anything they want because it's not good for them to have candy and Stay up with no naps and all that and you you watch over. Times that by a hundred, the wisdom of God compared to you, the wisdom of Jesus compared to me and us, human beings. He knows what's best and we may not understand it all, but his power is certainly available for us. There was a Sunday school that was putting on a Christmas pageant, kids program, and one little boy who really wanted to be Joseph didn't get the part. And he had another little rival boy in that classroom and that kid got the part and it ticked him off and he wanted to mess him up so at rehearsals he thought how could I mess him up the most and he got a plan they got to the play that night Mary and Joseph walked in and the the boy that wanted to wreak havoc was the innkeeper that was the part he was given so when Joseph walked in with Mary he unleashed his great plan and he said to Joseph great come on in and I'll give you the best room in the house well that's not how the story goes We have no room. So the little boy who was playing Joseph, the rival, was stunned. He thought for a moment, took a few seconds and then said, no wife of mine is going to stay in a dump like this. Come on, Mary, we're going out to the barn. (laughs) Back on track in just a second there. Keep Jesus in his place in your life. Keep, Keep him as the mighty God who rules over everything. And who cares about you. Keep faith in him. He's good. 
He'll wield his power on your behalf in his perfect plan and his perfect timing. Now, I'll tell you this. When it comes to God and his blessing, we tend to just think of it only here on this earth, but we cannot forget of the blessed hope as believers. We think of here and we think of there, but we don't think of in the air. We think of here and now, but we don't think of eternity. And someday there'll be no more pain, no more crying, no more tears. Life is created now where in this life, people that we love die. Things go wrong and things are hard. People fail us, but God never does. And the mighty God has an ultimate plan that gives you a place in heaven close to him where there's no more pain, sorrow, or tears. Yes, he will bless you in this life. Yes, he will give you miracles. But Hebrews 11, the faith chapter, I love the balance there. There's so much imbalance when when people talk in the body of Christ now, thinking that there should be a miracle every time we pray. And then they refer to Hebrews 11, where by faith they prayed and they got what they wanted. We call it the faith chapter. But the second half of the chapter talks about believers who were running, trying to keep from getting killed, and they didn't make it. They caught up to them, and they were sawn in two. They were killed. And the faith chapter, it's still the faith chapter, says that they were living by faith when they died and the world was not worthy of them. What? That doesn't fit into our theology. When we pray, we're supposed to get it. Well, we do get it, but sometimes it's here or there or in the air. And he's good and he loves us and you're going to get heaven and he will work on your behalf and he will do miracles, but faith is a two-sided coin. Faith to believe and see it happen and a faith that is precious to the Lord. That's what it says about those saints in Hebrews 11. It's still precious faith when you don't get what you pray for and you trust him anyway. The world was not worthy of them. Did you know there was a special reward in heaven for those martyrs? The Bible talks about a martyr's reward. Those who die for the cause of Christ. He's a mighty God who will move on your behalf and do miracles here, there, or in the air. Romans 9, 5 says, and he is God who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Jesus, the mighty God. Then this next term, everlasting father. You don't really see the term father given to Jesus Christ, but this prophecy is talking about Jesus Christ. You can understand what it means. That, that term is almost ex- exclusively or uniformly, maybe a better way to say, uh, left for the first person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Son. There's a mystery in the Trinity that we can't completely understand. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all three in one. One God, three distinct personalities. The closest I can get to understanding that is an egg. It has a shell, a yolk, and a white in the egg, but it's one egg, right? And though we can't completely understand it, the Bible makes it for sure that there's three persons in the Trinity. And so when we see Father here, it could be a little confusing, but remember this about the Hebrew culture. Uh, In their culture, this word that was used for Father, uh, when when it said Father, it means one who possesses something or is the father of something. Uh, It would mean the originator of something or the author of. It might be the way you say, perhaps there's someone at at work and uh, they really, they get things done and what they say, their word matters. You'd say, he is the king of that place. Well, he's not really the king, right? But it's the way you use it to show that 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 guy has a lot of power. And in this sense, uh, when it's used here, 
uh, applied to, to Jesus Christ, it, it, maybe the best translation would be the author of. The author of eternity. You see, they, they take the original Hebrew and they translate it to an English language. A better translation might be the author of eternity. Let's read some scripture to show that. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, the word already existed. And when it says word here, it's speaking of Jesus Christ. He was with God and he was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now check this out. You know, the author of eternity. He created everything there is. Well, it's talking about Jesus and creation now. Nothing exists that he didn't make. So here's the thought for you. Here's a principle. If you want to get anything eternal, you must get it from Jesus. Because he's the author of eternity. And we'll read more scripture that says this in just a moment. This word father, the originator, the source of, Hebrews 5, 9, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation. Jesus is the author of eternal salvation. Unto all that obey him. What that means is you have to acknowledge that you have sinned. You have to repent of your sin because it speaks of obedience there. And you have to take the grace, the forgiveness that God applies. The author of salvation brings forgiveness. Jesus is the author of everlasting life. He's the author of happiness. 1 John 5.20 And we know that the Son of God has come and he has given us an understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we are in God because we are in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God and he is eternal life. Jesus came to show us God's love and forgiveness, and he's the author of that eternal salvation and forgiveness, the Bible says. Let's talk about forgiveness for a moment. Uh, I live in a house that's a, that has a driveway that's about 120 feet uphill. And I have a, a lawn that's about 70 foot on the left side as you pull up. And it's only about 10 feet wide. But our driveway is, it, it's deceiving because you go up it and you go straight 90% of the way and just at the end it turns to the right a little bit and it fakes people out when they come to our house because they think they just gonna, they're gonna back straight down. They think they pulled straight up and when they back straight down, they go onto my lawn. Now, some of you, and you know who you are in this place, <clears throat> I would guess that over the last 16 years that we've lived there, 20 or 30 times my lawn has been torn up by people who pulled down and ran over it. And it's torn up easily because there are two springs. We live uh, the backside of Tualatin High School and the water runs off the, those fields and downhill there into our neighborhood. And water comes up out of my lawn from below. Two springs that come out. So it's soft. So when people go down on it, it just rips it up. And the worst thing you can do is try to pull back up because you're on the lawn, because then you, you just throw in turf everywhere. Well, um, just so you know, I forgive all of you who've done that. Um, and I forgive you because nobody's run over that lawn more than I have. But I want to tell you about a time my son ran over our lawn as we talk about forgiveness. My wife called me. I think he was 16 years old, hadn't had his license too long. He was driving the Tahoe, a little bigger rig than he was used to. And he got down and got on the lawn and he made the mistake of trying to pull back up. 
and it created a mess out there. And my wife called me at work and she said, honey, Aaron just ran over the lawn. And I thought, no big deal, because here's the deal. Here's what I learned, because it was so soft and pliable. I could get out there and I could mesh the, I could find the turf all over the neighborhood, you know, and put it back in and squeeze, and just two or three weeks, it's okay. And so she said, he's really upset. And I thought, no problem, that's soft and pliable, we'll work it out. And she goes, no, honey, it's really bad. I just want to warn you, and, he's, and he's, he's pretty hard on himself right now. And I thought, when I got home, hey, this is a great opportunity for me to show Aaron how God is. He's forgiving and loving, and it just doesn't matter. So we got home, and then I turned the corner, and that whole thought I had was challenged as I saw the Grand Canyon. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. 40 feet long, 10 feet wide, 4 inches deep with turf standing up this high. I thought, holy cow, how did he do that? And so I went up to speak to him, but I kept my composure, and I was going to show him about forgiveness. I'd already had a, that thought in my heart. And he just, he just would have none of being forgiven for those few moments. I can't believe that happened. How did I do that? I said, son, it's okay. It doesn't matter. It's just long. I can fix it in a year or so. You won't even know <laughs> that it's there. And eventually he calmed down and he took that forgiveness and he realized everything was okay. I think of that story and I think of the forgiveness of God. Some of us have made some big mistakes. And we think, we, 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 we just don't deserve God or, or, or we don't even understand the expanse of his forgiveness. It's so incredible. We think this can't be fixed. This mistake in my life, it's too big. Other people have seen it, but God comes along with an eternal spring. It's called a well of living water. And he can just cover things and fix them where pretty soon you don't even see that pain you don't even have a reminder of it because you've been forgiven. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that he casts our sins into the sea of forgetfulness, never to be brought up against us again. So literally, if you go to God to ask him to forgive you for something he already's forgiven you of, and you say, Lord, but don't you remember? God says, Jesus says, no, I actually don't remember because I distinctly remember forgetting that. He forgives. He covers Romans 4, 7, blessed are they whose transgressions rather are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Justified, the Bible says, just as if you'd never sinned. He's the author of forgiveness. He's the author of salvation. Would you let him cover your sins? Will you let him help you and hold you in your time of need? That's a wonderful present the author of salvation. And then the last thing that the text speaks of in verse six says he's the prince of peace. Now this is referring predominantly to the day that he begins his millennial reign on this earth. When Jesus comes back, he'll have that scepter on his shoulder and someday he'll be over everything. It won't be kings of other nations. His power will be marked by a perpetual peace, however. You know, there are kings and leaders and presidents and men who have made conquests, but they've done it through blood. Well, Jesus makes conquests through blood too, but it's not the blood of others. It's his own blood that he shed on the cross. It's his own power and preeminence that no one took his life, that he gave it that we might be saved. And his kingdom, when he rules completely, it'll be marked by peace everywhere. 
I don't want to discourage anyone, but you'll never see peace completely on this earth until Jesus rules. The Bible makes it plain. I know that kings and presidents and people with level heads can get together and make it better. I understand that. But you'll never see complete peace until Jesus reigns. And this is speaking of him as the, peace, the prince of peace in the kingdom sense. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, and by the way, I think, I think a theme, it could, it's arguable, but a theme of the New Testament, but the best theme you might choose might be the kingdom of God. You read through the New Testament and you see that term all the way through the New Testament, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Pray that his kingdom will come, that his will will be done. And, and if, you, if you watch it in your reading, you, you'll, you'll see that comes up a lot. Jesus came, the beginning of him being in that manger was establishing and bringing about the kingdom of God, his rule on this earth, this forgiveness that we speak of. And here's the thing about the kingdom of God that you need to remember as a believer. It's both now and not yet. It's not yet in the sense that you have complete preeminence because he's chosen to let men have a free will. And so we see evil things happen and bad things happen as the devil moves. And God's allowing us a chance to see who will serve him from his heart, from their heart, from her heart. But there'll come a time where he sets his foot down on Mount Olivet and he takes over his kingdom. And, and that'll be complete power. He has it now, but he won't wield it completely till then because that's what he's chosen. But, when we're asked to pray in the New Testament, you remember where Jesus said, pray this way, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the kingdom of God is not yet, but it is now as well. We can appropriate his power. We can appropriate this peace as believers. The enemy can't have rule over our hearts and lives. And I wanna talk to you for a moment about the peace that he would bring to you as an individual. We talked about the peace with his kingdom reign. He's the prince of peace. But let's talk about his peace that is now for you and I. John 14, 27. I am leaving you with a gift. Peace of mind and heart. Let's just stop and think of that for a moment. That that's what he wants for us. Do you know in the New Testament, Jesus said over and over again, fear not. Fear not. One of the things we learn about fear is most of the things we think about that could happen never do. <laughs> most of the things we fear don't happen. That's one good reason not to worry. The Bible says don't worry. Instead, turn your worries into prayer and the peace of God will come to your heart and your mind. And then perhaps some of those things could happen. I, even then, is it, is it best to be bound up and worry from here to there or at least have peace until you get there? I think I'd take the peace and then have the hit, you know, if that's what it's going to be. But the truth is, Jesus gives you peace of mind and heart right now, no matter what your circumstance. It's a peace that passes all understanding, the Bible says. And it goes on to say, and the peace I give isn't like peace the world gives, so don't be troubled or afraid. The Prince of Peace in this holiday season wants to give you peace. He is the only one who brings true peace. Everything else is a false hope or a temporary peace that can be offered. Money can make you feel good for a season. The right person that you get to marry or date can make you feel good in a short while for a little bit. But true peace that's, that's lasting only comes through Jesus Christ. You can't find it in people or material things or even good circumstances. Here's a quote from H.G. Wells 
Some of you may recognize the name, the great writer from the 1800s who was called the father of science fiction. He wrote The Time Machine and The War of the Worlds. I came across this quote this week and it's telling about the world and their search for peace apart from Jesus. H.G. Wells says, the time has come for me to reorganize my life, my peace. I cry out. I cannot adjust my life to secure any fruitful peace. Here I am at 64, still seeking peace. It is a hopeless dream. It is a hopeless dream unless you come to Jesus and then you find the Prince of Peace. I think a thought that steals your peace is what you don't have. But when you have Jesus, you have the most important thing in the world. And Jesus will remind you of what you do have. He'll remind you of all the good and perfect things that he's brought into your life right now. And his spirit will remind you of that hope that I spoke of earlier. He'll bring peace to you. And you can't find it without Christ in this world. I read a story about a guy who couldn't find peace. He became so troubled that he started to worry and he wasn't thinking right. And then he actually decided in his mind that he was a dead man. He, he, was, he was psychologically having some difficulty. His wife sent him to a psychiatrist. And the doctor chose to do these things to prove that he was alive. He took him to a cadaver. They cut him. And he said, look, Dead men don't bleed. He opened up a book. They did some reading. He was trying to convince him. And then eventually in his therapy, they saw videos. And finally the man said, okay, I, I believe it. I believe it. That's enough. Dead men don't bleed. And at that moment, the doctor took out a pen and stuck him and he started to bleed. And the man looked down and said, oh goodness, look at that. Dead men do bleed. He still didn't get well. I like that one. You guys don't like that one. The point is this, you try to figure it all out on your own and you'll come up with conclusions that take you to the wrong place and you won't have peace. <clears throat> I've seen a lot of proud men in my life and proud women who are very, very capable. Bright as can be, many of them way smarter than I am. Talented, Beyond compare, some of them I've seen. I'm, I mean, they're as talented as any I've seen. Gifts, lots of money. And none of that brings peace. It's all short term. But then I've seen people, one of these men that's talented, I've seen, I saw everything stripped away from him recently. <clears throat> He's a multimillionaire, doesn't go to this church. <clears throat> but he's a man of God. In a short time, $50 million was gone and he lost everything. And I went to his office to see him, to pray for him. And I'm gonna tell you something, Jesus had been there before I had because he had peace. A few of his friends in the state, as real estate changed and developers lost everything, there were a few men who took their lives because they thought that was their peace and when that was gone, how could they have it? But my friend knew Jesus. My friend could turn to Jesus and Jesus would say to him, that's not what this life is about. 
You still have all these good things and I'm with you and I give you eternal life. And he had peace because of Jesus, the prince of peace. Do you know the name, excuse me, Ira Sankey? Probably not. But Anna Talbot McPherson in her book, They Dared to Be Different, tells a story of Ira Sankey. He was a great gospel singer, maybe the most well-known of his day. He ministered with D.L. Moody in the late 1800s. And Sankey was traveling by steamboat. One day, it was Christmas Eve, 1875. The sky was clear, the stars were out, and the air was balmy, she says. This is her account of his story. Many of the passengers were gathered on deck, and some recognized Mr. Sankey and asked him to sing for them. He agreed to do so, but he paused and whispered a prayer to heaven for a choice of the song. And then he began singing in a clear voice that rang out over the quiet waters of the Delaware. He sang these words, Savior, like a shepherd lead us, much we need thy tender care. And when the song was over, a rough-looking man came up to him and said, Mr. Sankey, did you serve in the Union Army? Now, this was the Civil War. Sankey said, yes, I did, in the spring of 1860. He said, do you remember doing picket duty on a bright moonlit night? I do remember some bright moonlit nights, said Sankey. So do I, said the man, but I was serving in the Confederate Army. When I saw you standing at your post on that particular night, I thought to myself, that fellow will never get away from here alive. I raised my musket and I took aim. I was standing in the shadow, completely concealed, while the full light of the moon was falling on you. At that instant, just as a moment ago, you raised your eyes to heaven and you began to sing, and I took my finger off the trigger. The song you sang then was the song that you sang just now. I heard the words perfectly. These words stirred up many memories in my heart. I began to think of my childhood and my God-fearing mother. She had sang that very song many, many times to me. And when you had finished your song, it was impossible for me to take aim at you again. Ira Sankey threw his arms around that man and shared with him on that Christmas Eve the story of Christ of Christmas. The story of the Prince of Peace. The man needed peace in his life. He did not know God. And there on the deck of that boat in those moments, Ira Sankey told the story of Jesus and that man gave his heart to the author of salvation. 2 Corinthians 9.15 says this. I've tried to open that gift a little bit for you on this Christmas season. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He's the author of salvation. He's the prince of peace. He's almighty God with all power in his hands. And he's the wonderful counselor. All of that is yours if you'll just reach out to him.